Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So here we are, episode 30. This podcast episode is featuring Esther Mobley. Esther is a wine critic and wine writer out of uh, San Francisco. She writes for the San Francisco Chronicle. Her main area of focus is Napa Valley, but she covers all the California, California wines. She covers a lot about the American wine scene as well. She's uh, internationally known, got readers all over the world. Uh, she was featured on a few different podcasts over the last couple of years, and she was someone that I, th- I sought out as someone who was very influential as a, as a wine critic and wine writer on the American wine scene, and specifically on California wines. So what I did was I actually messaged a few of my friends, the fellow friends of the vine, and I said, well, what are some of the great questions that uh, Esther deserves for this podcast? You know, fire me, fire me a couple different ones. So I got quite a few different answers from people. Sean Nelson, who is an advanced psalm in, um, in Vancouver, sent me a couple of questions. And Christina Rasmussen, who is a wine writer out in the UK, uh, she sent me a couple. And uh, Heather Lip, who's also known as 10K Bottle, she sent me a couple. So thanks, guys, for, for some of the the possible questions that I fired at Esther. So we kind of focused on a bunch of different areas. We focused on how she got into wine and how she kind of paired journalism with uh, her passion for wine and how that kind of came about. We talk a bunch about, of course, natural wines, the natural wine debate, what other kind of minimal intervention winemaking is going on in California and what's going on outside of Napa Valley, what's going on in other areas of, of the California wine scene. And there's a few other areas we hit, which you'll hear once we start the podcast. Let's get right into it. Speaking of California and California wines, I also want to give a quick little shout out to my friend Christy Norman, who is, as you guys know from previous podcasts, she has started a online wine course. I highly suggest you guys check it out. She refers to it as a driver's ed for, for wine. If you're someone who's just kind of getting into wine and wanting to learn a bunch of the basics, she goes quite in depth actually it's a it's a good little course and it takes about three to four hours all in all and uh, it was a lot of fun actually so check it out christynorman.com and you can go on there and uh, and find the uh, find the course and right now as well there is a promo code for her course and the promo code is learn about wine so all one word learn about wine check it out I've heard your background a few times, but I think, you know, there's a few people may not know kind of, you know, you took English in in university and you were an English major and then you kind of, you kind of fell into wine going, you know, working at a, working at a winery. Yeah. And kind of got your passion kind of going from that point on, shall we say. That was, obviously it was a huge part of your life. Um, yeah, it's funny. I feel like I've kind of um, retold this story now so many times. It must be boring if anyone listens. Like, there's only so many wine podcasts out there, so yeah. people have probably heard this. Um, but yeah, I, I had a passion for writing and didn't expect to make a career out of it, but hoped to do it as a hobby. And in my um, post-university, as you would say, life, I went and worked a harvest at a winery in Napa Valley and really fell in love with it. Um, I still maintain that more kids should do that as they're kind of trying to figure out their lives. It's 
really fun and you learn a lot and it's hard work, but, um, really rewarding. Yeah. And so, um, then I went and worked to harvest in Argentina. Like maybe a lot of people, I was really developing a passion for wine, but didn't know where I was going to fit into the kind of wide landscape of possible careers. Um, and it was, you know, I still wasn't sure that wine itself was going to be a career. After working my second harvest, I think I, I kind of felt like I wasn't really cut out to be a winemaker. Now I think maybe I could have been if I had stuck with it. But, you know, I, I, back in Boston, I worked at a really great wine shop uh, called Federal Wines. I worked at a restaurant with a great wine program called Le Spallier. And I was just kind of continuing to cultivate this love of wine when um, one day I decided to apply for an internship at Wine Enthusiast magazine. And so I moved to New York and took this internship and was there for several months, then got a real job at Wine Spectator magazine Mm. in Manhattan. Uh, Just to touch on the Wine Spectator, because I know, uh, like I've I've read a few few of your pieces and you had once mentioned about, I know you mentioned this with the Chronicle, but having, having great editors and having great photographers to really help yeah. get, flesh out those kind of stories and stuff. And I, you, a few of your articles about uh, wine cellars um, really, uh, it, I'm like, I, I have a, I have a wine cellar I built in my garage and wow, cool. Yeah. And just, but just to see those photos and then to hear your, to hear your story to go along with it. It just, it just ties in so well. Well, um, that's nice of you. Yeah. At, at Wine Spectator, one of my responsibilities was this page in the magazine, every issue called private sellers in which we profiled people's home wine sellers. And it was both about the design. A lot of people had really built these really impressive things in their home, much like yours, I'm sure. And it was also about their wine collection. So um, those were fun. I I got to meet a lot of really interesting people, um, people who had, in most cases, many different backgrounds than I did, you know, hear about their verticals of Latash that they kept. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I was doing a lot of kind of li- the lifestyle oriented stuff that appeared in the front of the magazine at Wine Spectator, even though my dream was to to write the wine features that um, appeared in more toward the end of the magazine. And I got to write a few of those, but um, that was really what I was working toward there. Yeah, and that's, and, I mean, that's among other reasons, obviously, why you, you moved out to the Chronicle. Yeah. Just to touch on that for, for one more second, it's funny how... Like not being in the wine business, when you get to meet people who are just passionate about wine, you know, people like said, building those cellars and having all these great, you know, uh, great collections and stuff. And just people who are just into wine, you know, they're not in the biz. They're not, they don't have to be that passionate, but they yeah. are. Just it's like, really cool. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, you fall into that category. Now you, you do this, but you, your main career is elsewhere. Um, I'm super inspired by it. I mean, it, it can feel hard to be involved in something like wine all day. That is a kind of inherently social thing. And I, you know, a lot of days I've been tasting extensively at work and then spitting and I get home and sometimes you feel like you've kind of ruined your evening for yourself. You're like, wow, 
if I had a different job, I would be really looking forward to coming home and having a glass right. of wine. Right now. And now I'm like, no more wine. But yeah, I, so I'm really always inspired by and sometimes envious of people who just have this great passion and make a lot of time. I mean, I can, you know, justify spending a lot of my day not only tasting, but researching and reading and talking to people and visiting vineyards. And um, if I, you know, if I weren't involved in wine, I'm sure I would still um, want to do a lot of that, but it would certainly be harder to make the time. So I've got a few, a few people on Instagram that I chat with all the time. And uh, I kind of, I kind of sent like a group message to about 12 of them, kind of, you know, what I consider to be badasses in the wine industry shall we say right like uh-huh. wine writers and winemakers and you know psalms at various you know advanced psalms and and i said what are some of the things because I, I i can't always think of you know the greatest questions right and so i'm like what would if you had a chance what would you say or what would you ask or whatever right? so i've got a few a few random a random thoughts that uh, uh people wanted to know so people who read your stuff great um, great i love it the the push you know towards natural wines and the and the kind of the way things are moving in in the world and and minimal intervention and kind of do you think do you think that's the way of the future shall we say or will you know will winemaking styles still remain so so divisive like it's you could have style A style B style C because natural to me now isn't that super like the blend between what what people consider natural wines and minimal intervention and all those kind of terms where people are wanting smaller producers and are wanting the kind of, you know, small boutique wineries and all that kind of fun stuff, right? Is that the way we're going or or is there still going to be the bigger, the big names, you know what I mean? Well, I think the conversation around natural wine is evolving so quickly that it's really impossible for me to know where it's all going. I think it's, you know, it's a very different product. It almost is hard to call it and something like Gallo Barefoot, both the same type of product. Um, if you're thinking about, you know, a natural Loire Chen Blanc versus a kind of Central Valley bulk wine type of thing. Um, there, those supermarket wines are not going anywhere and they shouldn't, they have a large audience and, um, they're successful, um, type of product. I think the, the interesting question to me is how much natural wine is really going to dominate the higher end type of wine market, whether a lot of these wineries that, um, have become really successful and, pride themselves on things that are kind of done by hand, um, a lot of attention, really terroir driven, you know, think about all these kind of high end Napa Cabernet producers. Will natural wine become an important part of their conversation? I mean, right now the moniker I think still sounds a little too radical for a lot of that mainstream type of winery, but I hear a lot of them touting minimal intervention, telling me they ferment with native yeast. I mean, I think sulfur additions are still a bit of a line in the sand. I talk to a lot of people who are like, I do minimal intervention, but I believe sulfur is necessary. And I think a lot of natural winemakers would a lot of natural winemakers have told me they're happy to use small amounts of sulfur too. I think, um, 
you know, I don't know, the Jancis Robinson article about Jay McInerney, if you saw that this week, where she cited an incident when the New York restaurant Frenchette refused to open 1982 Oat Brion and La Mission Oat Brion for him because they wanted him to order from their uh, list of French, uh, excuse me, list of natural wines. Uh, that's like sparked this huge Twitter debate that I'm fascinated by. You know, I, I don't know, like um, Jancis Robinson suggested in her article that natural wine should be clearly labeled on a wine list because many times they're spoiled. And that seemed like a kind of retrograde point of view to me. Like, I think we can get beyond the idea that all natural wines are these completely oxidized, right. Britannomyces laden, you know, volatile acidity. They're, I mean, that's ridiculous. We've yeah. all at this point had beautiful natural wines. But the, the, I guess what I'm leading up to here is it is endlessly frustrating that we can't really all agree on what natural wine is. For a lot of people, that's kind of the beauty that it's this um, open, slightly nebulous term. But I think consumers don't know what they're talking about when they're asking for natural wine. It sounds like a great idea, but often they don't really know what they're asking for. They're excluding wines that they might actually like and want to drink. I think a lot of wineries are kind of capitalizing on some of this as marketing lingo, not in an entirely truthful way. So I, I think it's like this bit of a Wild West situation that needs a little bit of hemming in. People are kind of conscious now of what they're putting in their bodies and they're conscious of they want to see, you know, like the kind of drive towards organic and biodynamic and kind of sustainable, just sustainable, right? Like, like, yeah, we're, we're pushing towards the environmental, you know, our footprint on the, on the world. And, and so I think people, regardless of whether it's natural or not, or whether it's got sulfur or how much sulfur, it's just a push towards, I want to see the product that I'm, I'm drinking to be, if I'm eating clean or I'm trying to eat clean, but I'm drinking, you know, box wines, you know, I, I'm, tr I want to try and drink. And also the whole, you know, the push away from the big corporate kind of the mom and pop go towards more back to the small, you know, small boutique wineries and away from the big box kind of big corporation stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's so great. Anytime there's awareness among wine drinkers about how the wine was made. I mean, if, if, somehow the term natural wine or the term biodynamic viticulture is getting people to ask more questions and try to understand a little bit more about what went into what they're drinking. I love that. I'm all for it. And I, I mean, I love the, I love everything that the idea of natural wine stands for kind of honesty and mm -hmm. transparency, but here's another, sorry, here's another question yeah. I'm thinking of the push towards labeling on, on, on wine, putting what the actual ingredients are. Because if you're gonna put preservatives and you're gonna put other stuff in there, even if it's how many parts per million, should that be on there, you know what I mean? So this this is a question that I feel a little divided on myself because on the one hand, it's like, that's an easy yes, right? Great, We and, and all our food products have, you know, you can see where there's xanthan gum and corn syrup and everything. I think, I guess my fear, and so maybe I shouldn't hold wine to a different standard than I hold any food um, you buy at the grocery store that has ingredients on it, is that um, consumers kind of mis might misunderstand what some of those additives really do. Right. I mean, I've, I've, I've written a number of times 
stories where I'm, I'm trying to kind of convey the difference between what's appealing to someone kind of aesthetically or philosophically and what's appealing to someone from a health and safety perspective. You know, citric acid being added to, or tartaric acid being added to a wine to doctor the wine's natural acidity, that you might kind of have like a philosophical objection to that because it's doctoring the natural product, but you cannot have a safety concern about that. I mean, it's it's just perfectly safe for you to drink. So there's, you know, that's a benign example. Certainly, I think, should people know when uh, Velcarin has been used in the processing of their wine, which um, for a period of time, um, certainly not by the time the wine gets to you, but is a poison. I mean, I can kind of get on board with that. So I don't know. But I guess my fear is that you you pick up a bottle of wine and see that it has tartaric acid added or sulfur added or calcium carbonate added, and you're like, ah, it's this highly manipulated wine. And uh, that's really different from something, you know, where you're just putting uh, chicken that's been fed with antibiotics its whole life into right. your body. Well, and, and also that these things are, are done in other foods or, or elsewhere. So in your, in, your real, in your life, you're going to potentially have that in some other capacity. So it's not all of a sudden this like you said, it's not. Oh my God, I'm 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 putting one on my body. Actually, you already do that with whatever else, right? Right. I mean, some of the things, some of the the um, additives that are allowed, at least by our FDA in the United States, are just they they're like big words that sound harmful but aren't harmful, like you know, calcium carbonate. Yeah. I so I really kind of have mixed feelings about all that, and sometimes when it comes to wine, I mean, this is a product you're spending more money on than most. You know, it's a it's a luxury item. Even if you're buying a kind of modestly priced bottle of wine, it's more expensive than if you were to just have a beer with your dinner, right? So I think we are allowed to hold it to a different standard than we would other things. But you know, I wonder when we have this argument about oh, I I want to only put things into my body that have no additives are we you know are we doing that with the the pro the bath products we use and every time we eat food and we go to a restaurant and we don't know what they put into it and do you never eat a bag of potato chips i mean i i struggle with these questions myself i'm like where do i where should i be drawing the line uh, also at the end of the day like you mentioned before the what, what is the consumer the consumer still wants um, as as is colloquially known, the cougar juice. You know, they 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 still want the the big the big punchy wines, the big fruity wines and stuff. So there is a segment of the population that wants the natural wines, and the segment of the population that wants the eight dollar you know liter and a half. And a lot in between. And, and a lot in between. Yeah. Point between. I mean, it's funny. I that's my fear where the natural wine conversation presents a kind of false dichotomy that you're either. You were either drinking like, uh, you know, orange wine from Georgia that right. was aged in in Cavevri, or you are drinking yeah. like Gallo Dollar Barefoot Merlot. And yeah. most of the time, I'm not drinking either of those wines. So other other wine regions beyond Napa and what your readers are, first of all, your, your readers are, you know, across the globe, shall we say. So they're not just uh, the Bay Area. I, it's funny how there's certain people that I've, I always want to talk to or try to talk to. And 
there's certain wine writers and certain winemakers that everyone seems to be chasing after. You, you're one of them. Um, <laughs> you know, after you were on after you were on with Jeff Kruth, I was like, I want to chat with Esther. Oh but, well, that's very nice of you. So there's there's certain people like Rash Parr and there's and there's guys that um, or people in the industry that you're like, I want to chat with that person. So you're one of them, and and so I know you're you're obviously you know you kind of have a Napa a slight Napa focus, but an area like Lodi, for example. Yeah. It's getting bigger. It's, it's kind of getting a bit of exposure. Just what, what are your thoughts basically? Well, um, it's so interesting. So, um, you know, at the Chronicle, we consider ourselves a paper that primarily covers the Bay area. That's what we do. And in the same way that our restaurant critic is covering the restaurants of the Bay area, I'm to some degree kind of just covering our wine culture and, just like we have a huge tech industry here, we have a huge wine industry here. So, but the hope is that the world really cares about what's happening in Northern California wine. I mean, if you care about wine, you probably care about what's happening in Northern California wine. So my hope is always that by really doubling down and being the best reporter on the wine regions in my backyard that I can be, that um, I'm part of like a really important global wine conversation. So to that degree, Napa, I write a lot about Napa because Napa is kind of the center of the American fine wine industry and a lot of interesting things are happening there. Not all of them good, but yes, I mean, I'm constantly in other parts of California's wine industry. Lodi, I think is a really, really exciting place. Um, a few interesting things about Lodi. One, it's it's really made its name on this sustainability protocol and I think it's really become a leader in promoting responsible vineyard practices. Lodi has a real treasure trove of old vines that um, have endured from a long time ago. And it's got just a lot of great producers, a lot of mom and pop producers mm. who are working with family vineyards. I mean, there's big wine brands certainly that are known from Lodi and a lot of the big wine brands buy fruit from Lodi, but there's really just a great kind of homegrown uh, local wine industry there too. And a lot of grape varieties you wouldn't expect. I mean, I think we kind of associate Lodi with Zinfandel. And by the way, I think there's some amazing Zinfandel that comes from Lodi, but you have this McCallany Glen vineyard that has a lot of Germanic varieties, a lot of white Germanic varieties. You have Bokish vineyard that's really become one of the state's leaders in Iberian you know, Spanish and Portuguese varieties. Um, one of my favorite wineries in Lodi is called Fields Family. Okay. Um, and their winemaker is a guy named Ryan Sherman. They make um, a gorgeous Vermentino. They make a beautiful Syrah. I think they're really like, uh, they their wines would stand up to any made anywhere in California, and they happen to be from Lodi. You were saying, I think, was it you that were saying that one of the oldest Saint-Saul vines is in... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in in, Cal in in Lodi, right? I think. Yeah, the Bechtold Vineyard. It considered to be the oldest Senso vines in the world because you know they were planted pre-phylloxera. Yeah. So any Senso vines in a place like France would have had to be replanted. But yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a fabulous vineyard. Um, a lot of different wineries buy fruit from it. It's these gorgeous 150 year old old Senso vines. They're huge. I mean, Senso when it's young produces enormous clusters. It's like a really high yielding grape. That's one reason why it's great for rosé because nice. it I mean it produces a lot of uh, fruit on the vine. 
And uh, there's a number of producers who make a rosé out of the Bechtold Senso, but um, a lot make it into what what I have kind of started calling translucent reds. These oh. really kind of, it, it lends itself really perfectly to the style of wine that's proliferating elsewhere in California. That's this really lightly extracted, um, gorgeous kind of floral expression, light in color, translucent. I use the word crunchy to describe it, which well, it, asked me about. Well, that's hilarious. Yeah. Cause I was going to say that was one of my, one of my questions because that, that term and that, I just love that. I do love those kind of that gamay kind of those big. Yeah, exactly. It's a great style. And I think, especially cause I mean, California is known for part of California is known for the yeah, big, yeah. big abs and all that stuff. And to, to then say, Hey, look at that. Look at all these other varieties we have. And to see what else is, is being planted and, and, and being produced. Do you see a trend? Do you see any trends towards, the, is there certain varieties that you see that are kind of on the rise like that? Like yeah. I, you mentioned, I mean, you just mentioned a few of them, but. I think um, ground zero is Grenache. Grenache, yeah. we're seeing a lot um, being made in this really lightly extracted style, kind of the anti Chateauneuf de Pop style Grenache. I mean, it's Grenache that you would mistake in the glass for Gamay or Pinot Noir. There's just some really beautiful expressions of it being made. They're really light. I'm seeing like a groundswell of that. You know, one person who gets a lot of publicity for her Grenaches in that style is a winemaker named Angela Osborne based in Santa Barbara County. And her wine label is called A Tribute to Grace. Okay. Um, but Ian Brand, who I named the winemaker of the year last year, he yeah. makes a Grenache in that style under his La Marea label. There's there's just a lot. But yeah, I mean if you're I mean Grenache can do that. Well and it's it's great for it's great for rosés is one thing. I mean it's yeah it's so versatile. And it you know, Grenache is a grape that um, can maintain pretty good acidity at high alcohol levels. So you can you I mean it doesn't have to go into this really jammy, dark yeah. uh, kind of space. How, how did Crunchy come about anyway? How do, <laughs> you know, so I, I can't tell you like I heard Raj, I heard Raj use it. Crunchy, but I will say the best, so I'm, I'm stealing this definition from Jay McInerney, speaking of Jay McInerney, and a Wall Street Journal article he wrote years ago, he described Crunchy as the opposite of syrupy. And I always think about that. I think that's a good. Uh, I think that's a good summary. You know, basically, I think of it as crunchy fruit. I mean, think about if you're biting into a piece of fruit and there's some crunch, there's some structure to it. There's probably, uh, you know, it's. I think of a kind of fruit that is acidic, that is not just kind of falling apart. That's not soft. That's kind of perky, pert. Get a little bite to it. Yeah, it has bite to it. Yeah. Um, Fruit that's kind of earlier in its ripening yeah. moment, ripe but not not just not kind of soft and mushy. Yeah, yeah. Raj kind of had a very similar kind of the it's the texture, I guess, as well that you kind of get in your mouth. And yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it has a. I think it implies a flavor component. I talk about crunchy fruit flavors a lot, meaning I'm thinking more into that like that plum that still maybe has a little bit of greenness that you really have to bite into. That's not just dripping fruit yeah. when you're biting into the plum, but it absolutely is a textural thing too. I mean, you can't have, I don't think you, you would call a wine that was flabby and hot crunchy. Right. And that's, I mean, that's like just to change topic slightly, but that's, 
my like the way I like my fruit, I like I don't like those peaches and nectarines and stuff when you you gotta have a little bit of the skin's gotta have a little bit of of give. Yeah. Like it's gotta give a bit and sometimes I do like a, on a hot summer day, I do sometimes like a peach that's just like falling just, apart as you're eating. Yeah, just everywhere. Pretty good, but I agree. I, I, for the most part, yeah. It's funny how you're saying about the varieties because it's, it's the same in BC where people are just planting and that's the thing about being new on the new on the scene right you just well if it doesn't work let's try something different yeah you know there's certain there's certain grapes that are working for sure up here you know like there's some that are really you know really working well like Syrah and and like uh, Merlot's and and there's different ones that are working well but like I said people are are planting Grenache people are planting Zinfandel people are planting and it's just like well let's let's try it see if it works and and because of the you know, because of the climate and, and the and the elevation changes and all the rest of it, there's a lot of different. We're starting to get those Appalachian kind of structures a bit up here. I don't know how much you know about BC wines. Um, Not enough. Okay, yeah, it, it's just. I mean, for lack of a better term, they're starting to finally kind of define. Okay, this area, or to, to actually make uh, make some Appalachians and actually make rather than just saying yeah. Okanagan, rather than just take the Okanagan and paint one wide brush say no actually this area is is its own little own little microcosm right so finally actually in the last less than five years they've actually started to finally actually um, pinpoint different areas for and and then you know that that area is starting to really do well for certain um, certain grapes but the the sky is you know the everything's wide open right like whatever you want to plant let's plant it and try it I think it's a it's an interesting conundrum for nascent wine regions. On the one hand, think about something like the Willamette Valley that really went all in for one grape variety, Pinot Noir. Here we are, we're doing it. I mean, they're now trying to go to extreme lengths to mandate that your wine has to be 100% Pinot Noir if it comes from Willamette Valley and et cetera. And I think that that clearly has um, a lot of marketing benefits. I mean, people really can just understand very clearly this is what this region does. And a place like Oregon's Willamette Valley is really well regarded for its Pinot. But there's always a part of me that makes, that gets a little sad Mm. when a wine region kind of just says, this is what we do. I mean, Napa certainly does it with, has done it with Cabernet. That story was written long ago. And I think that's, for this era, at least, that's it. Cabernet is Napa, but I—I I mean, it gets. Maybe it's just that I'm a—I'm a drinker who likes to drink such diverse things. But I think it's really cool when wine regions leave room for some experimentation and and keep an open mind. And maybe that makes it harder to kind of communicate who they are to a mass audience, but it makes them much more dynamic and interesting, at least to me. Well, and and I, I totally agree, and and. It, I mean, we already have those regions in the world. So, we, you know, not that we don't need more regions, but, I mean, here's a chance where we don't have rules. We don't have the laws that they have. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know, the French government didn't tell you hundreds of years ago what yeah. you're supposed to plant. Yeah. Oh, you're one meter over. Oh, well, too bad. You have to be over here. And, yeah. the We talked about the BC stuff. I don't like to presume that people know <laughs> because it's like Niagara or something else that if you don't know it, you know, especially with BC, like, like a lot of people, like I talked to, I talked to a bunch of people and, and a lot of them know the region. They've maybe been a little bit or they've been to Whistler or they've been to Vancouver, but they haven't necessarily hit the Okanagan. So, 
And like well, the, I, I have not been to the Okanagan, but I hope to change that. I would really like to go. and Yeah, it, especially because you seem to be, like you said, you love the variety. You love just everything that's out there. So there's a ton of regions up here that, um, yeah, the sky's the limit and what they're, what they're, what they have out there. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's super cool. All the whites as well. Tons of different whites that they're growing. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Are you white or whites or reds mostly? Oh, all, all of it. All of the above. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, it's weather dependent as well, right? Like, like right now I'm rosés and, uh, and whites and, uh, and then once the fall hits, I'll be more back into the pinots and, uh, pinots my one, that's my main one. That's my, that's my. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my partner, um, much prefers red wine so i tend to open a lot of those at home when i'm drinking with him but but although he'll he'll go along with whatever i want to open so <laughs> um yeah i i mean most of this i i probably drink more white wine than red wine stage largely because i just i don't know i'm looking for something a little more refreshing with most of what i eat i think uh i think it's also like for me it was trying to because I was drinking so much red, you're trying to discover, just discover and open up your palate to everything else, right? So, for me, it was trying to make a conscious effort to drink more whites and and regions that I've never really tackled, and kind of be a little not systematic. That sounds too that sounds too boring, but um, no, good to kind of do a worldwide survey if you can. Yeah, yeah. my my latest is Portuguese wine. There we had a. A great uh, wine festival up in Vancouver is called Top Drop, and um, they have some great Portuguese wine there. And um, the winemaker is lovely. I'm gonna. I want to actually. I want to podcast with him down the road. So he was there. They flew in, uh, which is amazing for me. To, some of these wine festivals and, and stuff where you, you know you've got uh, winemakers and, and people from the from the from the winery that fly all the way all across the world for a week to to showcase their wines. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I love I love Portuguese wines. I was in Portugal um about a year and a half ago and it's just astounding how great the values are. I mean, beautiful, beautiful wines. It's just amazing. I mean, you could get you might that might be the like best value country, wine producing country in the world. Yeah, it's almost like best kept secret. It's it's Yeah. It's uh and that's the thing is it's value is value for money and that's that brings up a whole other topic about California wines and trying to find those hidden gems that are still uh, at a price point where the average consumer can still can still buy it. It's really, really tough. Um, and it's all tied back to land. I mean, I'm sitting here in my one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco in the most expensive real estate market in the country, we're told. Vineyard land in California, in the Bay Area especially, but in any part of California is just really, really, really expensive. And that drives a lot of the price of the wines here. Um, the cost of doing business is higher. You know, the salaries of winery employees are probably higher than in some other wine regions. It's hard. I think it depends on what you consider affordable. I think there's a lot of great California wines in the twenty to thirty dollar range. I recognize that twenty to thirty dollars is still really expensive for a lot of people, especially for just a weeknight wine. And I would tell them go buy an eleven dollar bottle of Portuguese wine. 
that's the case. But um, yeah, and then um, certainly our highest end wines are are just very very expensive. We're not the only place in the world where that's true. But I talk to a lot of winemakers, a lot of small scale winemakers who tell me they really do their best. They cut their margins down. They do everything to cut costs and they can just barely sell their wine for even $50. You know, they wish they could get down to $50. I, I know they're doing their best. They're not trying to, you know, jack up the price, but that's kind of what it costs when you're doing it in this really you know, attentive, careful way. Good. I'm glad we got the chance to talk. I'm glad you yeah. got your recording software in order. Yeah. It's funny when we first, when we were first going to start chatting and you're like, Oh, I'm so busy. And I'm like, ah, oh. mm-hmm. and then I'm like, I'm like, I can wait. I can wait. And, uh, like Matt, you know, Madeline Paquette from uh wine folly. Yeah. I was listening to her, your interview with her. Earlier oh yeah. Today. She she's so funny. She uh, I met her actually. She came up to Vancouver for the Psalm the Psalm uh, screening uh, in Vancouver. She came up and she goes, "You're persistent but patient." Uh, <laughs> oh, that's it. That's it. I I would agree with that characterization. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, fine. Six months from now, no problem. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll fire you another email. Well, I'll put it in the calendar. Six months from now, email email whoever. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we finally got this recorded. That's great. Yeah, great. I will try in a couple couple weeks. Hopefully, maybe a week. I'll try and get it out. Excellent. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to getting it out there. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ian. Okay. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me.